Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Brooke Bergstaller, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are things shaking and baking in your corner of the world today, Brooke? Oh my God, it's aloha, Dennis. I love the energy. We're shaking, we're baking, we're earthquaking all the way here in California. Hopefully not so much that my house crumbles to bits and pieces, but hey, if that happens, so it goes. Well, I'm no stranger to earthquakes. I'm from San Diego, California, and I went to school in San Francisco, so been through many an earthquake in my life. Let's get straight down to business, Brooke. What's your mushroom origin story? Were you born into a mycophilic lineage of mushroom cultivators and connoisseurs, or did you stumble upon the mushroom universe accidentally on purpose like most of us out here? I would say that my intro to mushrooms began with uh, a superfluous amount of Campbell's mushroom soup growing up. And <laughs> And later in life did I learn about the varietals. So uh, the psilocybin type of, of fungi entered into my life in my college years. And I'm so fortunate for the friends who brought the experience into my life because I really do think that the first experience that you have with psychedelics will largely shape the trajectory of your relationship with them moving forward. So I was with a very beautiful group of trusted friends who took me out into nature. And it was the first experience for most of us. We just bought a bunch of mushrooms and everyone told someone I don't know, our dealer told us like, take this many. And we were like, okay. <laughs> and I had no idea what to expect, except maybe what I'd seen in Fear and Loathing. And uh, it was a most divine experience that opened my mind and heart and all of the doors to probably the path that I'm on today. And uh, I will share a really funny story from that first time sitting with psilocybin, I was, uh, I was laying on like a tapestry. I was in Miami, Florida. So it's beautiful jungle atmosphere. And we're in a very private enclosed space. And I was with a bunch of friends and I was lying on a tapestry, like rolling around in the dirt, which tends to be how I find myself. And I had a friend next to me who was quite literally bugging out. Uh, and, uh, that'll make sense in a moment. He spoke out loud that he had a fear that there were a lot of bees around him. There were a lot of buzzing bugs and he was starting to trip that like, they're going to sting me. I don't know, guys. I don't know what's happening. And he's expressing this out loud. And I was like, oh my God, that's terrifying. What? And then I saw my whole body covered in bees, which is honestly quite a deep hallucination for a psilocybin experience, but saw my whole body covered in bees and they were all buzzing and moving. And I just started cracking up. I was like, that's wild. And that's not real. And I really feel like that one moment with myself and my mind like helped me to understand what was really happening and how I could participate in the experience. And um, yeah, so that moment forward, I really had a trust for a lot of plant medicines and uh, I've been dabbling ever since. But in my current years, now we're into the reishis, the chagas, the lion's mane. I'm not afraid to spend $9 on a mushroom infused latte at my local cafe, okay? I'm not afraid. <laughs> well, that's how it starts for most of us, right? It's like we hear about button mushrooms and the shitty little mushrooms they put on pizza when you're growing up. You're like, I don't like these things. And then the first time you have lion's mane and you eat it, you know, you're like, what is going on? What else is out there? What have they been concealing from me? So, but I think the psilocybin mushrooms are a foot in the door for a lot of people to really get sucked into the whole mushroom universe and start learning about, you know, there's this old adage that like, 
Are you taking magic mushrooms? Well, all mushrooms are magic. Literally every single one is magic, except for buttons. Fuck buttons. <laughs> I'm in a fight with certain mushrooms too, so. Well, I caught wind of your presence in this space via some of our mutual connections, working with the Double Blind media platform. Shout out Zoe Wilder. And she mentioned that you host Double Blind's How to Grow Your Own Mushrooms course. So I'm curious, how'd you first link up with Double Blind and what has that experience been like for you creating online educational materials for the psychedelic space? Oh, my Lanta. Well, yes, yeah, shout out Zoe Wilder. Shout out my Double Blind gals. Uh, it was a beautiful experience getting into the fold with Double Blinds. Uh, my origin story as far as content creation um, in these spaces begins with cannabis. And that's actually how I got to know Madison Margolin, who's one of the co-founders and editors over at Double Blind. And fortunately for me, they asked me to be a part of the How to Grow Your Own Mushroom series. And it turned out absolutely beautifully. Uh, we shot a ton of content all in one day. I have to give them full credit for coming up with the curriculum and the outline and the how-tos for everyone that participates in the course, which I highly recommend. And our executive producer was Ophelia Chong, who actually will be appearing on my podcast this week. She is like the mycelium mastermind and was really responsible for making everything make sense and, and gel together for someone to actually take this course and like really be able to grow along with what the offering was. So um, yeah, it was honestly, it was quite mind boggling for me having a new level of understanding and appreciation, much like I do in the cannabis space is when you really learn in the podcasting space, when you really learn like the effort and the intelligence and the expertise required to get a final product to you, be it a pre-roll joint or a Joe Rogan podcast or some beautiful mushrooms that are going to take you on a wild journey. Um, it's really like I feel humbled to be in the presence of such great, yeah, masters, masters of the world. So again, if you want to grow mushrooms, take the course. Not only are there videos for people to follow along with, but there's also Q&As with people that like actually know what the fuck they're doing because there's so much information on how to grow mushrooms on the internet. Like a lot of things, it can take you in a ton of different directions. And this just helps to bring it all into one streamlined and organized space to get you, get you started on your entrepreneurial endeavor. So a decade ago, there was virtually no one speaking publicly about their psychedelic experiences. Of course, there was the old guard. There was the Dennis McKenna's and, you know, the Rick Doblin's and the Paul Stamets in, in the 60s and all that. But like it, you know, there weren't a lot of people our age who were going on public facing media programs and talking openly about their psychedelic experiences. Fast forward to today and the last few years. And there's a ton of people, quote, coming out of the psychedelic closet and speaking about their personal relationships without fear of, you know, professional retribution or about the, the black mark or the shame that it might put on someone's name because they use psychedelics or dabble in psychedelics. So I'm curious, this is all relatively recent. And we've seen this massive shift now where the cultural climate says it's okay to talk about your experiences. And there's publications like Double Blind out that are exclusively dedicated to talking about these experiences. When did you first come out of the psychedelic closet, Brooke? And was it an easy, smooth transition from private experience to public domain? Or did it cause some turbulence in your personal and professional lives? Hmm, great question. 
I typically am asked this in regards to coming out of the cannabis closet, which was somewhat of a struggle for me. I come from a professional acting background. And so now entering into the space of cannabis or then entering into the space of cannabis, I was very nervous that it would potentially prohibit certain opportunities from coming my way. And having broken through that fear and realizing that whatever opportunities would be withheld from me because of my public stance on plant medicine advocacy, I wouldn't want those things anyways. They would not be in alignment anyways. And I feel similarly with psychedelics. Uh, it's certainly, you know, I've jumped on the bandwagon as well. I haven't been, I wasn't initially vocal about psychedelic experiences for Absolutely, for fear of judgment, for fear of my parents finding out, being mad at me, <laughs> for fear of getting in trouble. I don't know. Society has done a number on all of us and our willingness to be open about our inner truths. So it feels really beautiful to be able to have conversations like this right now with intelligent folks and uh, be able to be a hopefully positive representative of not just an advocate, but a consumer of these uh, psychedelic substances. And so, uh, yeah, I hope, to, I hope to keep talking about all of this. And I am I'm very grateful that the conversation has not just the door has not been open, but the door has been like burst the fuck down. I mean, it's trendy as hell right now for people to, to trip balls. Uh, but I do see the conversation is um, not headed in two different directions, but it is an interesting time because along with this new wave of acceptance, there's also a huge excitement for a marketplace to emerge and for profit to eventually stem from what was initially gifted to us by the universe as these, you know, beautiful, free for everyone teachers. So I'll be curious to see how that conversation shifts and, and evolves as as we continue to evolve along with it. Well, I think you just hinted at one of our next topics of conversation, but we'll get to that momentarily. First, I want to know, can you tell us about a meaningful mushroom experience that you had that helped contour and shape some of your views about yourself in the world? You hinted at your first experience, and I would imagine there have been subsequent experiences. I'm happy to share some of my stories as I slowly let them trickle out on the pod. But are there any that are coming to mind, maybe besides that first experience, in terms of a meaningful psychedelic experience with mushrooms that helped shape some of the way that you look at the world now? Wow. Well, there's truly been many. I think that one experience that's really standing out to me was actually kind of an initiation experience for my partner. He had never consumed mushrooms before, was open to it, just had never been provided the opportunity. And so really like laying the foundation for a beautiful journey to unfold for him made for a very meaningful experience for me and that day we were at this place called Jalama Beach in Florida uh, in California which is just a hysterical name for a beach Jalama and we went for a beautiful excursion and uh stumbled upon <laughs> Went for a beautiful excursion, like walking and hiking through the forest, and then eventually we wrap around to the ocean. We're on a ocean shore, and there's big cliffs all around us, and it was like our own private, like playground, which was unreal. And then <laughs> we stumbled upon a 
dead seal carcass and it was like decaying and rotting and super gross and super eerie and I think those are the moments with mushrooms that I really appreciate and they sound like scary or weird or really odd talking about them but when you're in the moment and you can kind of like see see decay or see death or see the ugly or the scary but you're being held by this medicine to um to not be negatively affected by it but more just observe it and accept it and uh, that was a really profound moment for me of like normally probably if I was completely stone cold sober I'd be grossed out by this I would be like I would want to get away from it as fast as possible it would leave a scarring effect on my mind and instead I was intrigued by it and I wanted to spend time with it and I wanted to appreciate like the cycle of life with this like, rotting corpse. <laughs> Honestly, maybe it was unhealthy to be so close to it. I swear I didn't touch it. Uh, and also just to have that, that like beautiful, full packaged uh, perspective shift or like enlightening moment with someone who had never really visited that corner of their mind was a very exciting and memorable one for me and then there you know there's been a lot of other weird shit that's happened too but your turn Dennis yeah I was gonna say you know it's it's hard when someone puts you on the spot and you have to rack your brain because that means you have to have integrated the experience already and for a lot of us it's like wow I did this amazing mushroom experience but what did I learn from it or what was meaningful about it let me let me ponder on this but I was just having to sort of rack my brain momentarily too feeling like oh man I've shared some of my experiences let me try to share a new one and this one was in New York City, and I flew out to be part of a music video shoot back in 2018. And I have a back, I have a background in media production and a degree in media studies and all that. But I'm usually like, you know, behind the camera or in the editing booth. And this was me being part of an ensemble cast for a music video, and we were working with some really heavy hitters. And it's my friend Chris Deo Braun, amazing musician based out of New York, and. We had a director of photography that had been shooting music videos for Rick Ross and he was shooting for Me Without You and like all these heavy hitters. Delta Spirit is a great band he works with a lot. And then we also had Chris's brother, who's the actor Nicholas Braun, who's Cousin Greg in Succession. He's in a ton of really interesting movies, you know, like A-list movies. So I was part of this small group of people and we wrote the script and the whole idea for the music video on the fly. And the whole time I was like, holy shit, we're literally spontaneously creating this even at a high level. Like there's not a huge production budget. There's not, you know, a bunch of people telling us what to do, running around with clipboards, yelling action. So I, I took a few capsules out there because that's how I've learned to travel with them as you grind them up and throw them in a, you know, multivitamin container or whatever. And we were in a bodega some, somewhere in New York City. And I'm, you know, on a, a probably a gram of mushrooms doing this video and the whole time I was like shit man like I'm working with higher caliber talent than I've ever worked with before I'm gonna fuck this up so bad but being part of that process I realized how much goes on behind the scenes where like everybody was fucking up like everybody you know we, we were cooking up ideas the next scene is gonna be shot in the CVS right here and it was totally guerrilla style so what I took from that whole experience was that when you're looking at something from the outside in you assume that these people have everything figured out they have a bulletproof plan. They know exactly what they're doing. 
And that's not necessarily the case. A lot of the joy of it is being spontaneous, is being in the moment, is being, you know, Im improvising a lot. The mushrooms helped me not overanalyze everything and just be part of the magic as opposed to like feeling like, oh shit, I'm going to forget a line or I'm going to forget a move in this choreography or whatever. So that was a really fun experience. And I've repeated that several times now since then, I got to say. Yeah, meaningful experiences are what it's all about. My take on it is like, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, did it make a sound? If you had a psychedelic experience and it didn't have some kind of ripple effect in your community and in your life like what was the point of it so that's kind of how how i take to it but let's move on to different takes hot take time about decriminalization legislation legalization and the general rollout of mushrooms and psychedelics in the united states and worldwide because just this year we've seen several major cities and several major psychedelic conferences take place in extremely public places with large promotional budgets. And I've been to a handful of these conferences and to a handful of these cities. So the tide has shifted in a momentous way where the government is trying to figure out how to contend with the psychedelic community, how to look out for their ends. The psychedelic community is trying to figure out how to contend with the government. And there's a million different perspectives on decriminalization, best practices for that you know, people first, sensible drug policy. So the tide is shifting. And even within the psychedelic community, especially within the community, there's a lot of social friction about how to handle the mainstreaming of psychedelics, about how to handle the rollout of these teachers, as you say. And in regards to creating profit centers derived from them, in regards to a, quote, industry that's emerging, I'm curious if you've spent time considering this and mulling over it, and if you have a particular stance on how the rollout of psychedelics, we'll say psilocybin mushrooms, but also psychedelics at large and entheogens can be rolled out in a ethical, equitable, and uplifting way that does justice to the many different stakeholders involved. I know this is a big one, but just would love to hear you go and run with this, Brooke. I love that you said ethical and equitable. I think that, you know, I have opinions, but I am not a lawmaker nor a lobbyist, so I will let, you know, the powers that be have their way with crafting appropriate legislation. Uh, but having spoke to Ophelia Chong the other day, she gave me another way to look at this. Um, because, again, I come from the cannabis space, but cannabis is a vastly different substance than psilocybin, ketamine, LSD, etc. Cannabis experiences last a couple of hours and they're not necessarily transformative. And so an industry existing, someone like you or I being able to go into a store and buy these products, no problem, just have to be of age, is vastly different than making the psychedelic transformative substances fully legal in shops where people can have the freedom to use them as they like with really, I mean, like if you look at the lack of education in the cannabis space, how many people go into a dispensary asking questions like, can you tell me what this will do for me? The answer is no. We can like kind of tell you, but every body is going to react different. So to think of that being reflected in a psychedelic marketplace, someone comes in like, can you tell me exactly how to take the mushrooms and exactly what will happen? No fucking way. I don't know your traumas. I don't know your relationship with your mother and father. I don't know what's going to come up for you. So I think that there do need to be protections in place to protect the consumer. 
which honestly conflicts with what I inherently believe, which is these are natural substances designed to enlighten and evolve and open people up. So shouldn't they just be freely growing in our public parks and anyone can do what they want with them? You're an adult. I don't care what you do. Uh, but people are dumb and they need help. <laughs> and, um, so I really have no idea what I think the blueprint for a marketplace should look like. But I 1,010% know that the therapeutic use of these substances is and must continue to become more commonplace and more accessible for people and not just at, you know, $3,500 for four sessions of ketamine therapy. Um, I yearn for the day when insurance companies accept that these are actually medicines and when used in the right environments can help rehabilitate people who have PTSD or depression, anxiety, eating disorders, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and anyways, Ophelia, Ophelia was the one that was talking about uh, focusing on that first, on the therapeutic legalization and utilization of these plants and allowing that to lay the foundation for are humans responsible enough to have more accessibility um now all of that being said just like with cannabis i do believe that the decriminalization of these substances is of the utmost importance uh, statewide nationally people serving time for any kind of thing that is now allowed by a different group uh, is absolutely heartbreaking and doesn't it just is nonsensical. So I I, I hope that um, yeah, I, I hope that the future is is open-minded and welcoming to all of these things. I have no idea if, what the road will really look like because as we've seen with cannabis, it has been long and arduous to legalize and it still hasn't happened yet. So <laughs> yeah, I think I have, I have qualms. I have fears that there will be a lot of people involved in the psychedelic space that have never actually participated in these experiences themselves, that have never touched the substances, that don't actually believe in the magic or profundity that exists within them and just see dollar signs and profit. But if some Joe Schmo with a couple billion dollars has to invest in a mushroom company in order for soccer moms all around the world to have experiences that change their lives for the better, then so be it. And I do believe that there is a higher intelligence involved in how this will all play out. And that's a little bit of faith for you. But I think that these are intelligent plants and they probably have a game plan in mind. We might think that we're in control and I would venture to believe that that's not 100% true. So um, it's a little bit of come what may with me, but I certainly hope that, yeah. The ethics enter. <laughs> That's an interesting way to frame it about having an intelligent plant, intelligent fungi who might have their own game plan and we might be unaware of what that is. But one, one hot take I have is that a lot of the conversations about legalization and decriminalization 
are very U.S. centric, right? It's like we're approaching it from these optics of like this is the United States because in many ways the U.S. is at the vanguard of global culture in a lot of ways and what what we've created with this society that we live in. The U.S. exports culture, so you know what happens in the U.S. sort of has this ripple effect. It has a ripple effect everywhere. But psilocybin mushrooms, in particular, for the purposes of this podcast, but power plants are global, right? It's not just limited to the U.S. So I've had psilocybin mushrooms in a dozen different countries and there are people operating with impunity right now you know in places like laos and southern mexico where i'm based and iceland and amsterdam and africa and i've made a lot of inroads to these communities to people who they don't really give a shit what the legislators in the u.s do because they're already up and running and you know and they're got this impressive presence now when you start to dip into the industrial angle and like, you know, how, can you sell it at a storefront? Well, a lot of these operations are clandestine, right? It's just like communities doing what communities do. But I haven't fully developed my thoughts on this subject. But at the same time, I just think it's important to note that a lot of these conversations we're having oftentimes are centered on the U.S. or on Holland or on, you know, Western Europe. It's like, dude, there's what, like 192 countries recognized by the U.N. and several dozen more territories that are, are not. And psilocybin mushrooms are present in many of these places. And even if there's not necessarily a longstanding historical tradition, there are people who are starting to tap into it and who are setting up growing operations, you know, in places like Cameroon, you know, and places like like Timor-Leste. Like, so I think that it's the people's medicine. The governments can do what they want and they might broadcast that something's happening. It's not necessarily the facts of the matter. Like there is a huge global community that's tapping into this and we can't lose sight of that. And at the end of the day, the governments work for us. Okay, we don't work for them. The governments work for us, even if they try to spin it the other way around. So that's my piece on that on that whole matter. Yeesh, Dennis, I love that so much. Wow. Thank you for that. That was a yeah, that was eye opening for me. I appreciate that. I do think it's important to note, however, that if it weren't for Nixon creating scheduled drugs and and spreading that propaganda around the world that we wouldn't really be in this like I, I don't know self-centered point of view to begin with I think um at least from my point of view <laughs> we are largely to blame and so I think that's where the the self-centered focus comes from is um rectifying what we've done <laughs> It's fascinating. If anybody takes the time to Google DEA Schedule 1 substances, the DEA drug schedule, there is a fact sheet that they have about mushrooms, and it's fascinating. It is so authoritarian. It is so pejorative. They have, they're like, uh, street name, shrooms, cause of, uh, ways of abuse. And the, I'm like, they're talking about how these things are abused. And they're like, um, consequences, potential potential death it says that on the dea schedule one sub which you know that's not inaccurate but the whole thing just reads so orwellian which i'm sure it's designed to be i think we need a brand refresh on dare right i grew up in the dare era and what a fucking joke you know but i used to teach high school brook and i often thought like there's a huge huge need for like an in touch appropriate like up to speed scientifically informed data informed trauma informed drug program for drug education worldwide, but specifically in the United States, because the freshman multimedia students that I had, uh, I caught wind of all kinds of, you know, different pills that were floating around and like, you know, thing substances where I know that these kids weren't testing the substances in many cases. And I just thought, man, D.A.R.E. really fucked us with such an inadequate 
regiment that they were pushing on drug education, pushing on schools. Well, where's the successor to dare? So somebody out there listening right now, like that is a huge need. And I got the connections in the educational space. So let's fucking go. All right. So I was going to say, Denny, let's do it. I've held on to my dare shirt since uh, elementary school because I know that's going to be worth something one day. Although I've cut it into a belly shirt and made it low cut. So it's cute. But I think it's a relic. It's so important that somebody takes the lead on this and that, you know, the, the rest of the world is starting to look at the data and not just the anecdotal evidence and the fear mongering, but like looking at data. Right. And I'm not here to unabashedly say like like drugs are safe for everyone. Like, of course, you know, there's set and setting, which I want to talk about next. There's all these different factors, purity, like your own personal wellness routines, et cetera, your traumas, your family history. But there's no cohesive program right now that's taking all of these things into account and teaching students about it. So I think that's a huge need right there. So speaking of set and setting, Brooke, do you have an ideal set and setting for a mushroom experience? I'd love to hear about that. Okay, so my vision of the perfect set and setting has definitely changed over time. As I've mentioned, I was a lot more comfortable just like taking some acid or or whatever, taking some mushrooms and... uh, going out and about at a festival or going to a party or just like melting my face off around lots of strangers. I tend to be a little bit more, uh, I don't know, I've like grown into, I just need it to be like a little more cozy nowadays. So I love to be out in nature. I think that is the perfect recipe for anyone who's embarking on a first journey or hundredth I uh I love to like stick my hands in the dirt and and feel the leaves and the flowers and and see the trees breathing and for me a lot of times plant life like becomes personified and that's a damn good time (laughs) like I'm pretty sure that bird we're like in the exact same frequency field right now. And I know that bird is chirping for me. I'm pretty sure it's talking to me. Uh, Moments like that are pretty unforgivable or unforgettable and and unbelievable. But yeah, I would say, I would say out in nature. And one thing that I am really curious about, because as of the past couple of years, I've now um, began to develop a relationship with ayahuasca. And that's in like a very controlled ceremonial setting. And you get to a space, there's a guide, there's someone guiding and holding the container for you. You're sitting like in your very own nook and you're encouraged not to interact with anyone else. And Yes, I do think that ayahuasca is a very, very, very potent medicine. But I'm curious about sitting with mushrooms in a ceremonial setting under those same guidelines, uh, where that would take me, how much deeper you might be able to go just knowing that like that is the sole purpose of, of what you're there to do. I've done a number of different ceremonies and certainly a lot more of my own volition. Yeah, well, with mushrooms, I've done two ceremonies, both with Maria Sabina's family about a decade apart. And so those were interesting because there were also fresh mushrooms, which I've never done that before. I mean, since since the first one I have. But that was a really eye-opening experience for me that first time because they're chanting in Mazatec, which is their original language, you know, not even the colonizer Spanish language, but like the OG Mazatec. And there's different elements they explain, like the copal they're burning that's helping to cleanse the atmosphere. And they use something they call San Pedro, which is St. Peter's, the, you know, um, custodian of heaven. But it's not the San Pedro cactus. It's actually tobacco, which I was confused about because like, oh, yeah, it's San Pedro. 
but I kept smelling it and rubbing it like, no, it's tobacco, but it's San Pedro. So you just learn a lot of these things where you're like, wow. And it's also, it's so integrated with religiosity and Catholicism because those are syncretic religions now in Huatla de Jimenez, specifically where I was, where there's a lot of religious iconography. We're going to have a cat visitor here in a second. Oh, lucky you. Say hi, Brooke. Say hi. Hello, Lita Magoo. Yeah. So, That's your trip setter? Yeah, Pika's, <laughs> yeah, she looks like she just ate two lunches. She's running heavy for sure over at the neighbor's house. So, yeah, so anyways, um, I, I agree with you on that. I love being out in nature. I think for high doses, it can be really important to know where you're comfortable because even if you have a ton of experience as a psychonaut, you might get hit really hard by something out of nowhere if you're playing with those upper range doses but for like half eighth at a time i love being in water man like a you know hot springs or like waterfalls something that that white noise in the background of a waterfall hitting the water and the more biodiversity the better if there's monkeys jumping from the trees and you got bird songs like all that plays in a hundred percent so i've got some spots you know if if I like you, if you like me, then we can go to some of these spots because there's plenty of them out there. But nature never disappoints on that one. Yeah. So cool. The set and setting, though, that, you know, it's different for everyone. That's for sure. Um, OK, so I wanted to tap in real quick. I took a quick look at your bio before we started recording. And I saw that you are a reporter and producer for Mary Jane, which is Snoop Dogg's cannabis media company. And I just want to hear what's it like working with Snoop D-O-double-G and being a part of that whole world? Wow. Well, obviously, Snoop is probably the number one cannabis icon on the planet. Yeah, I actually, I used to work with Mary Jane many moons ago. That was when I first entered into the cannabis reporting component of my life. And it was a beautiful time with them. Mary Jane rules. I made uh, a really powerful documentary with Mary Jane called Prisoners of Prohibition about people serving life sentences for cannabis. Maybe there needs to be a psilocybin. Uh, prohibition documentary next. Uh, but yeah, I, I absolutely, I love talking about weed and I love talking about these plants and how they can continue to benefit us and how much they very much belong in the medicine cabinet and was grateful to have the opportunity to do that with Mary Jane. For sure. And while we're on the subject of music and musicians and icons and all that, who are some of your favorite artists? We can make it trip specific and not trip specific, right? Because I think music can be awesome for, you know, if you're having a psychedelic experience, like a lot of people are going to be playing music and music will take you to that next level in some cases. So who are some of the artists that you're preferential to? And also, you know, outside of the psychedelic space, who do you like to listen? For example, I love Slayer, but I'm not going to fucking put Slayer on when I'm tripping, dude. That would be a horrible idea in my opinion. So what do you think? Uh, well, we have different tastes and I appreciate that. I love world music. I don't know when this happened. Just kidding. Yes, I do. Ever since I was a little kid, don't know what this past life situation was. But as long as I don't understand the language of the lyrics, I am in. And I truly mean that because you can you feel the energy, the deeper meaning, the emotion of the song without attaching yourself to the words. So like I love Portuguese jazz. I love Afro uh, psychedelic Afro rock. I, uh, I don't know. That's, that's really my jam right now. I've got a beautiful playlist on Spotify. Check it out. Uh, all beings everywhere. Thank you so much. I've being, I'm being served up, uh, pretty global sounds, but probably my favorite band. One of my favorite bands is the Dirty Projectors. I love Sylvan and Esso. Um, ooh, I, I, I like music. I really do like music. 
I like Amber Kaufman, the vocalist of Dirty Projectors, has a great song with Major Lazer called Get Free. Have you ever heard of that? That's a fucking banger. You know, they do the festival circuit, but they're, they're underrated for sure. They're a really awesome act. I've seen them before. You know, it, it kind of runs blurry because I went to a bunch of different festivals and everybody played the same festivals. But I remember Dirty Projectors being at Coachella one of the years I went. Um, yeah, I, I collect vinyl and I love world music too. So every time I travel somewhere, I try to find a little record shop and I've got, you know, music from New Delhi, India, from like uh, Rajasthani folk songs. And I've been dipping into Cumbia music. I used to live in the Middle East, so I played the oud and used to hang out in the district where the luthiers made oud. So, yeah, you know, Slayer was just an offhand, off-the-cuff reference. I have a pretty cosmopolitan music taste myself. I even, yeah, man, I lived in San Francisco. You know, I got to fucking earn my smugness, you know, and music's one way to do that. All right, so we've kind of tapped into most of the stuff I wanted to dip into today, but one thing that we got to ask before I let you go is, what are you working on right now, Brooke, that you can share with us? You know, without spilling all the beans, you know, what, what are you working on that we can look forward to over the next six months to a year? Oh, shooby dooby. I'm so glad you asked. Well, I have founded a beautiful cannabis and wellness platform called Budding Mind, which you can find on Instagram. That's where we primarily exist. But Buddy Mind has also become a podcast and it expands well beyond cannabis to all the realms of plant medicines. We talk to shamans and scientists and teachers and experts in all different kinds of fields. If it's far out and spiritual and woo-woo, girl, we got you. And I'm also working on a beautiful project under the Buddy Mind umbrella that I cannot actually talk about, but it's very exciting. It's a first for me and it will be a tangible thing that people can hold. And I'm not talking about like a joint or you won't be able to smoke it, uh, but it's a beautiful infusion of something that I hope every cannabis consumer will have in their home to help guide their relationship with the plant and uh, infuse a bit of intentionality when when partaking. And that's kind of my steez, baby B. Brooke Berg, Staller, Budding Minds, thank you so much for joining us on the Michael Pruner Podcast. Much love. We look forward to following your trajectory with Budding Minds and all the other great things you're involved in. Yee, thank you, Dennis. Que onda, my friends. Gotta refresh the outro, too. So what'd you think of this episode? Drop us a line. Hit the DMs on Instagram at Michael Podcast, or dare I say, TikTok. Yes, we've been engaging in TikTokery as of late. And while I have your attention, Ego Death Magazine is actively soliciting content submissions and recurring contributor roles. Just take a look at the type of content exhibited thus far at www.egodeathmagazine.com to get an idea of what sort of materials we are looking to platform. So don't be a stranger. Bridges, not borders, baby. All right. You take care of yourself now. I'll be seeing you around. Ciao, au revoir, sayonara, and adios, motherfuckers.